We left off on Tuesday talking about the Second Great Awakening, and we were discussing in particular the shift that was starting to take place in the way that ministers, in particular evangelists, were thinking about preaching, were thinking about evangelism. And we noted that with the Reformation, with the First Great Awakening, with those revivals, that those revivals were unexpected revivals. They were unexpected works of God in which faithful preachers were focusing only on being faithful to the message and they weren't seeking to manipulate people into making a decision. They weren't trying to coerce people. Uh, Yes, they were being persuasive, but it was a persuasion that was driven by the text and by the content of the message of the gospel not a persuasion that was attempting to manipulate people into making an emotionally driven decision, but rather it was preaching that was aimed at seeing people truly repent, and that repentance was being measured not in terms of a momentary decision, but in terms of a lifetime of fruit. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, when he is defending the First Great Awakening from those who are questioning its legitimacy, He gives that lecture on the distinguishing marks of a true work of the Holy Spirit, and then he preaches on the religious affections, and that becomes a book, his treatise on the religious affections. All of this is emphasizing the fact that the marks of true conversion, the marks of a true work of the Holy Spirit are seen not in a momentary decision, not in a verbal profession, but they are seen ultimately and most fully and convincingly in a changed life. And so the proof of proof, or the evidence of evidences, as Edwards writes, is in a changed life. And he, along with even his grandfather Solomon Stoddard before him, they looked to books like the epistle of 1 John and the tests of life that are there in 1 John, and they say these are the tests of true conversion. These are the evidences of true revival. Revival on an individual level where hearts are regenerated and where lives are transformed. As we get into the Second Great Awakening, though, the the Second Great Awakening begins, much like the First Great Awakening, as an unexpected move or movement of the Holy Spirit on people's lives through the faithful preaching of the gospel. But as we get into the Second Great Awakening, there is a shift that begins to take place. And this is what we were discussing on Tuesday. And this shift is a shift toward pragmatism. It is a shift toward, really, manipulation on the part of preachers in the way that they approach their audiences. Because these evangelists begin to think, you know, we can actually, we can actually produce more results if we use certain mechanisms or certain new measures whereby we build up the emotional hype and as a result we get more people to make kind of (laughs) pressured decisions in the moment and the result then is we can count those decisions as conversions and we can begin to even evaluate and measure our success as evangelists in terms of numbers of decisions rather than in terms of the lifelong fruit that is seen 
in the lives of those people who are influenced by the message. So this is the shift that is taking place. And those new measures, uh, they, they start really in the camp meetings on the frontiers, particularly among Methodist revivalist preachers. But Finney is the one, Charles Finney is the one who, as a Presbyterian pastor in New England, he's the one who really kind of adopts those new measures and popularizes and sort of formalizes them in, um, in subsequent generations of church history. And so we look back to Charles Finney as perhaps the catalyst, I suppose, the one who is somewhat responsible for popularizing this new approach to evangelism and one that still has dramatic effects on the way that many American evangelicals think about evangelism. And uh, there's still evangelists, itinerant evangelists, who go around and hold revival meetings and they employ these same strategies. And these strategies include things like protracted meetings, long meetings, because it was discovered that if you have people meet for long periods of time over several days, they're more likely to respond because you can create that kind of crowd dynamic and that kind of manipulative atmosphere in which you can get people to do what it is you're trying to get them to do. And uh, music was a huge part of this, playing lots of music, playing music repetitively in order to increase the emotional hype, encouraging people to respond physically to, um, it's in some cases, to, to fall down under supposedly the weight of the preaching. This is what gives rise to being slain in the Spirit. Charles Finney even encouraged people to respond in kind of inexpressible or um, undecipherable gushings of praise. It's what he referred to them as. It eventually gives rise to the modern tongue-speaking phenomena that is part of the contemporary charismatic movement. But it's this idea of responding physically in some way, of getting caught up in almost an ecstatic response to what is happening in the moment. Uh, and there were, there were others. The most, perhaps the most effective and most well-known of these new measures was Charles Finney's anxious seat, which really was the altar call that the Baptists had developed on the frontiers, the mourner's bench that the Methodists had developed on the frontiers. Finney adopted that. He called it the anxious seat, but it was having everything build to a climactic invitation and then calling people to give some sort of physical or audible uh, response to the invitation in the moment where you have this peer pressure having built, and then you call people down to the front. And so the altar call, we talked about this on Tuesday, it, it, it has a history that goes back to the Second Great Awakening. And even the entire mechanism of kind of using peer pressure to build to this climactic, emotional moment where you get people to make the decision that you're trying to get them to make. And if you can get them to make a decision... Uh, that was deemed as conversion. This is, a, again, a shift in the way that people think about conversion. Conversion, 
For the Puritans, conversion during the First Great Awakening, conversion is about a transformation in your life. It is something that God does at the moment of regeneration. He transforms you from the inside out, and the fruit of that transformation is seen in changed behavior. But now with Charles Finney and with others, conversion is nothing more than changing your mind about something, almost in a flippant, momentary way, and Finney's convinced that that's something you can do, not something that God does in you. It's something that you can do. This is consistent with his New Haven theology, his new divinity that he adopts from Nathaniel Taylor, which we, we've just mentioned on Tuesday, and we'll talk a little bit more about it today, which is really an Arminian form of... It was Calvinism uh, redefined was really an Arminian form of Calvinism, so not Calvinism. But it was this idea that it's, it's the human audience's ability to, to convert themselves, to create in themselves a new heart. And we ended on Tuesday by even mentioning one of Charles Finney's sermons. He preached in 1831, which was actually titled, Make Yourselves a New Heart. So rather than preaching that you must cry out to God for mercy, that he would create in you a clean heart, Finney's going around telling people, you have the ability to make yourselves a new heart. And so everything is built up towards getting people to make this decision. And if they make the decision, then that counts as a conversion. That goes as a notch in the belt of the evangelist. Oh, I had 30 conversions, I had 30 decisions. And you start to have people defining their success as an evangelist in terms of the number of momentary decisions rather than, in a more biblical sense, uh, having them see conversion as something that really you can't, you can't identify for sure until you've seen the fruit of it over a period of time in subsequent behavior. All right, so we ended then on Tuesday with this sermon entitled Make Yourselves a New Heart, and where Charles Finney says that becoming a Christian is no different than deciding to become a lawyer, and you decide you want to be a lawyer, and then that becomes the governing purpose of your life. You decide you become a Christian, that becomes the governing purpose of your life. Uh, never mind the fact that, you know, people who make these decisions at these evangelistic events that Finney would hold and that, of course, subsequent evangelists throughout American church history have held, never mind the fact that five, ten years later, many of them no longer profess to be Christians and have, give no visible evidence of being Christians. The fact that they made a decision, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, came forward, whatever, is seen as all that is needed for assurance of salvation uh, and that goes completely contrary to what, again, the epistle of 1 John makes so clear. So what I want you to understand from all of this is the Second Great Awakening begins as a legitimate revival. There is much legitimate revival that takes place during the Second Great Awakening. There are many good organizations that are started. The American Tract Society, the American Bible Society, the American Board for Foreign Missions. So much of this is good. And yet in the middle of the Second Great Awakening, there are those who believe that they have found a new man-centered formula for creating revival. 
and they essentially hijack the Second Great Awakening, and due to the success of the legitimate revival, they gain credibility for their new measures and their new methods, and they set the American Evangelical Church on a track that has some pretty devastating results, and we still see the implications of that thinking today. So, where does all of this come from? Much of it comes from the Second Great Awakening. Being slain in the Spirit, the altar call, uh, manipulative, man-centered forms of evangelistic technique, the idea that you can schedule revival, and all of those things, they find their basis as really negative outcomes of the Second Great Awakening. Yep? Um, what did you say on Tuesday that they called New England now? That what? They I'm called sorry. New England? Like oh, yes, New England. <clears throat> yeah, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go through these pages, but after the ministry of Charles Finney, and, and this was... Finney really came in in the 1820s, which was about 20 years after the, great, the Second Great Awakening had started. So there was a lot of momentum already. And, and Finney kind of built and capitalized on that momentum from the true revival. And then he introduced these new measures. And these new measures had a lot of immediately impressive numeric results. Because... Finney's new measures, I mean, it was, you know, like any trend, it was a new way of doing things. It seemed immediately successful. A whole bunch of people are jumping on the bandwagon, and they're like, this is great. This is the new way to do things. Within about 10 years or so, things started to take a nosedive. And by the end of Finney's ministry, New England is referred to as the Burnt Over District, the Burnt Over District, because it was a place that became actually very callous to the gospel. And many historians believe that it was largely due to Finney's new measures that people got turned off to a false understanding of what the gospel is, and as a result of that, they didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity at all. And even today, New England is probably one of the hardest places in the United States for biblical gospel ministry to thrive. David. The cultural practice of uh, pray this prayer, receive Christ in your heart, the sinner's prayer, could that be traced back to its origins here with Finney or does it go back Yeah, the sinner's prayer. <clears throat> um, certainly, I, w I think we could say that the, the way in which the sinner's prayer is often perceived as a, here, just pray this quick prayer and as long as you say the right words, then you, you've said the right thing and you're in, and it doesn't matter what happens in the rest of your life, that perspective is something that I believe we could trace back to the Second Great Awakening. In terms of a sinner praying to receive Christ, obviously that's something that transcends, I mean, that's a mark of true revival. We see that all the way back in the New Testament. I mean, that's, that's what it means to be saved, is to cry out to God for mercy. Um, so it depends on what you mean by the sinner's prayer. But if, if, if by the sinner's prayer you mean uh, sort of a just, hey, repeat after me in the moment, and as long as you said these words, then that's what you look back on as the assurance for your salvation. Yes, I would say that's a product of the Second Great Awakening. All right. 
Not surprisingly, Charles Finney openly denied the total inability of sinners. I mean, you can't preach a sermon called Make Yourselves a New Heart if you think that sinners are unable to do anything to contribute in the process of salvation. Teaching instead that man has the ability to convert himself. And so Finney said, when God commands us to do a thing, it is the highest possible evidence that we can do it. God has no right to command unless we have the power to obey. He said, regarding Calvinism, or regarding Reformed doctrines, these doctrines I could not receive. He says, I could not receive Calvinistic views on the subject of atonement, regeneration, faith, repentance, the slavery of the will, or any of the kindred doctrines. One of Finney's contemporaries, a pastor named Gardner Spring, who was a pastor in New York City for about 60 years. He's actually the pastor at the church before William G.T. Shedd became the pastor there. He said, men were instructed that all that is necessary in order to become Christians is to resolve to become Christians, and the purpose and determination to become Christians are themselves the religion of the gospel. It was the teaching of some that the renovation of the heart, instead of being the work of the Holy Spirit, is the creature's work, and that the power of the Spirit consists in persuading the sinner himself to perform it. The principal advocate of these new measures and these Pelagian errors was the Reverend Charles G. Finney. And I think Spring is right to compare Finney's view of the gospel with Pelagius, going all the way back to the late 4th, early 5th century, the British monk who taught that people could earn their salvation through their own cooperative efforts. And so rather than saying that conversion, regeneration, the renovation and transformation of your heart is completely a work of God, Finney taught that it was really entirely a human work, and his job as an evangelist was to convince people that they needed to, they needed to improve their own lives. That's essentially what he reduced the gospel to. With regard to revivals, Finney openly taught that people, or that revivals should be expected and promoted by the use of means designed and adapted specially or specifically to that end. He criticized those who thought that revivals were a miracle, an interposition of divine power, which Christians had nothing to do with, and which they had no more agency in producing than they had in producing thunder or a storm of hail or an earthquake. So up to this time, the idea has been that revival is a supernatural, miraculous work of God. We are faithful to preach and proclaim God is the one who takes that message and does something miraculous with it. And so revival is something that we really have nothing to do with. We can't manipulate it. We can't create it. It is unexpected. Finney says that's ridiculous. It should be expected. It should be planned because it can be created, it can be coerced, it can be orchestrated. And so after this time now, it becomes popular for churches to plan revivals, have revival meetings. And like we talked about on Tuesday, you look at your church calendar, you go, oh, we're going to have revival next week, and it's going to start on Thursday, and it's going to end on Sunday. 
And how do we know if the revival is successful? Well, how many people made decisions? How many people came forward? How many people came down to the altar? That becomes the measure for determining the success of the revival. It's all product of the Second Great Awakening. All right, so Ian Murray says, For Finney, an appeal for public action had become an essential part of evangelism. He believed that all that was needed for conversion was a resolution signified by standing, kneeling, or coming forward. And because, according to Finney, the Holy Spirit always acts when the sinner acts, so it's, it's about the sinner taking initiative rather than about God taking initiative, the public resolution could be treated as identical with the miraculous inward change of sudden conversion. And so again, instead of with Edwards waiting to see the fruit of conversion and the fruit of repentance in a person's life, Finney is ready to look just at the momentary profession and immediately see that as all that's necessary for the assurance of salvation. Finney's theology was influenced by Nathaniel Taylor, name that we've already mentioned. He was at Yale. Taylor, in an effort to explain human responsibility and salvation, rejected a straw man of Calvinism that he had created, which was the idea that God made men sinners and would send them to hell for sins he had directly created in them. Sounds a little bit like Dave Hunt's view of Calvinism. In part, Taylor was motivated by an effort to defend against Unitarian attacks on orthodoxy, and so he created a form of Calvinism that was not Calvinism anymore. So Ian Murray explains the solution was to assert that sin and guilt can only be attributed to men's voluntary choices. All that needs to be changed in the unconverted man is his will, not his nature. As Taylor's biographer observed, the doctrine of total depravity was central in the Unitarian attack on orthodoxy, and Taylor departed from that doctrine, and his New Haven colleagues then tried to restate Calvinism in more acceptable terms. In other words, they tried to redefine Calvinism in Arminian terms, and they created a form of Calvinism that wasn't Calvinism anymore. Now, we're using the label Calvinism. I don't really care about the label, but you guys understand the doctrines that we're talking about. Total depravity and God's monergistic initiative in electing and then in converting unsaved and unwilling sinners by transforming their nature in the miraculous work of regeneration. Taylor's teaching becomes known as the new divinity, and it is Finney who adopts that and makes it the basis for his evangelistic technique and his new measures. So listen to this. Ian Murray, <clears throat> Ian Murray says, According to Finney, Christ's death was not a payment of debt on behalf of those whose sins he bore. It was rather an action to satisfy public justice, making it safe and possible for God to forgive those who repent and believe. So the act that secures forgiveness is man's, not Christ's. So he denies imputation. The atonement itself does not secure the salvation of any, wrote Finney. When a sinner repents, that state of feeling makes it proper for God to forgive him. So the, the shift is entirely now on the initiative and free will of the sinner to respond. It's the sinner's response that God's forgiveness is even based on, not the work of Christ on the cross. This is a pretty significant departure 
And I just want to make sure that you understand how significant it is. Yep, Chris. Uh, these theoretical views by Finney, would, would you say from what you know about him, was this something that he, he could quote, quote, developed or came to, or is this something that he taught from early on that we know of him teaching? Yeah, I think this is something that he taught from early on. And, and even his uh, analogy about how somebody resolves to be a lawyer and then they want to be a lawyer and then they resolve to be a Christian and then they want to be a Christian, that was Finney's own testimony. He had been a lawyer and then one day he decided he was going to be a, a Christian pastor and he just stopped being a lawyer and started being an evangelist. So that was his own testimony. Um, Many of Finney's works, when they were originally published, were highly edited. And so a lot of this material, the controversial material, doesn't show up in some of the early editions of Finney's works. And so a lot of people view Finney as sort of a hero. In, in some circles, Finney is kind of this great evangelist hero. The reality is, though, as more of Finney's original works have been discovered and published and more of this stuff has come out, I think a lot of people have come to the conclusion that maybe Finney wasn't the great evangelist that everybody kind of touted him as. All right. Finney's methods caused major controversy and splits within New England Presbyterianism, as you might imagine. And so now we have uh, an old school and a new school of Presbyterianism. Over against the new measures, we have those like Archibald Alexander, who was president of the newly formed Princeton Seminary. And Princeton Seminary then becomes kind of a, a bastion of anti-Finianism. It will also become a bastion of anti-liberalism as we move on into the 19th century. And men like Charles Hodge and A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Machen and others will come out of Princeton Seminary. So we'll talk about them later. But here's Archibald Alexander talking about Finney. Some are preaching that man is in possession of every ability which is required for the discharge of his duty. That is, it, it is as easy for him to repent, to exercise faith, and to love God as it is to speak or eat or walk or perform any other act. Nothing is more in the power of a man, they allege, than his own will, and the consent of the will to the terms of the gospel is all that is required to constitute any man a Christian. In response, it is attended with many advantages to bring into view ancient heresies, for often what modern innovators consider a new discovery and wish to pass off as a scheme suited to remove all difficulties is found upon examination to be nothing else than some ancient heresy clothed in new dress. And that's a reference again to Pelagianism, that this is nothing more than a Pelagian view of the gospel. I mean, this I would say this is beyond even evangelical Arminianism, which I think is rightly classified as semi-Pelagian. Finney took it farther and made it entirely dependent on human will. Finney asserts that his new measures would guarantee results. With regard to conversion, Finney claimed that the prayer of faith is always answered by the specified blessing prayed for. We see that pious parents can render the salvation of their children certain. Only let them pray in faith and be agreed as touching the things they shall ask for. And God has promised them the desire of their hearts. 
And so there is this element in which Finney believes as long as you, as long as you pray for it and and uh, pursue it, it will happen. And um, again, part of the way in which he's guaranteeing results. So Ian Murray says it's now claimed as proven that the use of the anxious seat and its attendant teaching, in other words, an invitation and a call to respond, a call to come forward, always sees the multiplication of converts. And the argument went, as such, a result could not be without the working of divine power. This is, this is important. Understand this. God must be setting his seal to the doctrines that were preached and to the means that were used. What was indisputable was that making conversion a matter of instant public decision with ascertainable numbers immediately announced in the religious press produced a display of repeated successes on a scale never before witnessed. Numbers seen to be responding were claimed as more than sufficient evidence for the rightness of the changes in practice and teaching. Did you get that? Finney comes up with these new measures. The new measures produce visible numeric results. When, when people like Gardner Spring and Asahel Nettleton and Archibald Alexander and others, when they challenge those new measures and they say these are not biblical, the response is to say, who are you to challenge the new measures? Look at the numeric success. Obviously, God is blessing these new measures because they're producing results. Man, that, that same line of thinking is still used today to defend all sorts of unbiblical evangelical trends. The whole purpose-driven movement, which I know is a few years old now, but the whole purpose-driven movement, the purpose-driven church in particular, that book uses that very same method of defense. Who are you to question these methods? They obviously have God's stamp of approval because look at the numeric results. Numeric results means God must be blessing. But if you stop and think about that logically, wait a second. There's all sorts of false religions that have great numeric success. Does that mean that God is blessing those false religions? Are we going to say that Islam has the stamp of God's approval because it's one of the fastest growing religions in the world? Of course not. So why would we then use that same standard in ministry? Never let numbers become your standard of success. All right? Finney teaches us that, and uh, it's, it's just interesting to see the shift. Once numbers became the standard of success, pragmatism was entirely entrenched in American evangelical thinking. It has been ever since. Just that I have on revival. Actually, no, not on this one. It was somebody, Jay Oswald, reading it. Just He was quoted, and he said something like, it just seems that I had multiple innumerable slayings of the spirit how the power and I was getting baptized over and it just seems that with one of my words <coughs> multitudes would be cut to the heart and would be transformed and as I was reading this I, I just I couldn't help but feel a, a sense of pride where it was not necessarily you know God working in these people is that he was so holy he was so connected with the spirit that it was his words that were cutting to, to their hearts, and it was it was really really sad, and and how how somebody can think that way and elevate themselves that way. Yeah, you know, 
it, it always comes back to the issue of authority. And we talked about it a little bit with the Enlightenment that you had in 16th and 17th century Europe, these really four competing sources of authority, whether it was religious tradition or whether it was the scripture, like the reformers, or whether it was science and reason, like the rationalists, or whether it was emotions and personal pursuits in the arts and music, like the romantic philosophers. And, you know, so often in ministry and, and honestly just in the Christian life, things come back to that basic fundamental question. What is my authority for why I'm doing what I'm doing? I mean, that's why a philosophy of ministry is so important, because it forces you to identify what's the authority for why we're doing this. And in the case that we're just reading about here, we're seeing numbers and visible numeric success, results, has become the authority. And that is the authority in pragmatism. And what you're talking about there, experience, spiritual experience, becomes the authority. So and we see that with the charismatic movement. Who are you to question my experience? Well, I, I'm nobody, but I'm, the Word of God can question your experience. So... We can't let results be our authority. We can't let experience be our authority. We have to let the Word of God be our only authority. That's how you stay, that's how you stay biblical in ministry, is to, is to determine now that the Word of God will be your authority and then to make your decisions in ministry based on the fact that it is your authority. So, you know, it, it comes back to that issue time after time after time. Good observation. All right, so here we get to the turning point. We're almost to the end of these notes, and then we'll get to the test review, which is why I know you're all here. But um, Finney, Finney, claimed, Finney claimed that the success of his new measures could be seen in their numeric results, and yet even by his own standard, his manipulative techniques began to fail. So at the end of e Ian Murray's thing there... Um, <coughs> Finney's claim at the beginning, he says, Finney's claim was that success proved the rightness of his cause. But as we get towards the end, even Finney himself, lecturing in 1835, admitted that ever since 1831, the glory has been departing and revivals have become less and less frequent, less and less powerful. Even in Finney's own ministry, he wasn't able to maintain the numbers. He wasn't able to maintain the hype. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the whole church growth movement the market-driven church of Willow Creek and Bill Hybels, where it was probably five or six years ago now, but they came out after doing market-driven stuff for like 25 years. They came out and announced that they had come to the conclusion that this was no longer the way that they were supposed to do it because the results weren't there anymore. And when you, when you get onto those bandwagon trends and you allow results to be the authority for why you do what you do, pragmatism you end up getting driven and tossed all over the place because once once the trend isn't trendy anymore, then the results aren't there and you have to jump on a new bandwagon. Finney experienced the same thing. Ian Murray asserts that the reason Charles Finney's new measures were so widely accepted was due to four factors. Number one, their visible numeric success, which trumped the need for a biblical defense of the new methods. I don't have to have a Bible verse if I have results. Number two, Christians wanted to see visible success and the new measures offered it in a new and exciting way. 
So we're, you know, we're kind of tired of doing things the same old, historic, biblical way that we've always been doing them. We want to do something new and exciting. That's still part of evangelicalism's problem today. Number three, the new measures were introduced in a time of true revival, and they gained credibility as a result. And there were some people who were genuinely being saved in spite of these things. And number four, the supposed success of Finney's methods received much more publicity than the clear harm that was done to the church as a result. So remember, Ian Murray's book is called Revival and Revivalism. Revival is that true work of God in which he transforms a sinner in regeneration from the inside out, and the fruit of that transformation is seen in a changed life. Revivalism is using emotional manipulation and human man-centered techniques to get immediate decisions which you then count as results, and you base the success of your ministry on those quote-unquote results. So Ian Murray says this, Until about 1830, it would appear that one single definition of revival prevailed. A revival was a sovereign and large giving of the Spirit of God, resulting in the addition of many to the kingdom of God. That's 1,800 years of church history. That's how Christians understood revival. In 1832, preceding Finney's lectures by three years, an American Presbyterian minister and writer by the name of Calvin Colton went into print with a novel theory that genuine revivals could be classified into two different types. The old and the new. The new, he believed, were the same in character and nature as the old, but they had only begun to occur in recent years because previously men had not learned how as instruments to originate and promote them. So the new kind of revival is the man-generated kind of revival. The reason this second type of revivals had not been known before was simply that the use of means in order to, in order to the promotion of revivals had not been previously studied. And Finney was the one who popularized and articulated those man-centered, man-driven mechanisms and means whereby revival could supposedly be manipulated. But the reality is it wasn't a true revival. It was a counterfeit revival. So, final bullet point. While true revival is a supernatural work of God, revivalism contains no real element of mystery. Psychological pressure, prayer used to create expectancy, predictions of impending results, the personality of the revivalist pushed to the forefront, the appeal, reference to the final invitation and altar call, these and similar things are generally enough to account for the extraordinary in its success. And that's a quote, of course, from Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism. And in the same way that a self-help seminar or a timeshare seminar or a good salesperson going door-to-door can convince people to make an emotional decision, revivalists started to do the same thing. Now, I'm not going to read this addendum, but I just want you to know that it's in here If you're looking for more um, of an assessment and evaluation on Charles Finney's ministry and theology in particular, you can read this article by Phil Johnson. And uh, I think you could probably just read the title and get a sense of what he's going to conclude in the article. But it's called A Wolf 
in sheep's clothing how Charles Finney's theology ravaged the evangelical movement. Yep, Cameron. I think, I think you also wrote a really good appendix in the chain to the gospel on Charles Finney as well. Yeah, a- actually this material and that appendix, if they're not identical, they're very, very similar. So, um, yes. All right, so that's the second Great Awakening. Starts good, it has some good effects and good results, and we'll talk about those next week when we talk about the modern missions movement. It also has some really negative impact and results as we see in terms of the damage that is done through this really man-centered, man-driven, man-manipulated form of revivalism, which completely shifts the church's focus from trusting God to do a work in the sinner's heart to pragmatic methods whereby sinners are emotionally manipulated to make a decision, the fruit of which is never really considered. Uh, there's, there's some other really bad uh, effects that come out of the Second Great Awakening as well. Uh, the Restorationist movement and a number of American cults get started as a result of the Second Great Awakening, but we'll talk about them later. All right, we need to shift gears completely now and talk a little bit about this exam. I have a half hour to go through these, so we're going to go very, very quickly. See if we can get through most of them. All right, this exam covers uh, the post-Reformation period. Now, it, it hits a little bit of the Reformation period still, but it's, it's really post-Reformation. And so we're looking at the Puritan movement in England and then the uh, French, German, Dutch uh, movements just briefly, what was happening in, in, in Europe after the Reformation for the next really 200 years after the Reformation. And then it gets into the beginnings of American colonial Christianity the First Great Awakening, and the Second Great Awakening. And this will set us up for the third exam, which will pick up with the 19th and 20th centuries, really modern American church history. So Thomas Cranmer was the first archbishop of the Church of England, and he was the one who authored the, or at least authorized, the Book of Common Prayer, which brought a uniform liturgy to the newly formed Church of England under Henry VIII in the 1530s. Mary I was the oldest daughter of Henry VIII. She was known as Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor, and she killed, authorized the execution of nearly 300 Protestants and Protestant leaders in England during her five-year reign. Many of those Protestants fled, went to Europe. They interacted with reformed uh, reformers in Europe and came back and uh, really provided the seedbed for Puritanism. John Fox wrote his Book of Martyrs that catalogs a lot of that history. Elizabeth was the younger sister, half-sister of Mary when she came to the throne after Mary died. When Elizabeth came to the throne, she... Uh, really provided the stability in England that was necessary for the long-term establishment of a Protestant church there known as the Church of England. And the 
Church of England, though it was started by her father, Henry, uh, really got its structure under Elizabeth. had something of a Lutheran-slash-Catholic form of liturgy uh, with the Book of Common Prayer and those things. It had a Reformed soteriology, and it had an Episcopalian form of church government with Elizabeth the Queen being the supreme governor of the Church of England. Cameron. Yes. So she was the daughter of Henry VIII. Correct. From another mother. Correct. So her, Mary's mom was Catherine of Aragon, and Elizabeth's mom was Anne Boleyn. But both daughters of Henry VIII. The Act of Supremacy. There's actually two Acts of Supremacy in English history. The Act of Supremacy in 1534 was when Henry VIII was declared by Parliament the supreme head of the Church of England. But uh, the one that we're really looking at here is the Act of Supremacy of 1559, which declared Elizabeth to be not the supreme head, but the supreme governor of the Church of England. And the reason it was governor rather than head was because some of the English citizens were concerned about having a female as the head of their church. And so she was named the supreme governor of the Church of England. It was, uh, it was passed in 1559, but sometimes it's backdated to 1558 due to the way that English parliamentary law worked back in the 16th century. But 1559 is the date we'll associate with it. Uh, James I was the cousin of Elizabeth when Elizabeth died and had no heirs. James I, who was James VI of Scotland, became the king of England. And he started in England in 1603. He is the King James who authorized the King James Version of the Bible. His son Charles uh, really had it out for the Puritans. And uh, Charles uh, married a Roman Catholic wife and also had an Archbishop, William Laud, who was Arminian and was very antagonistic towards the Puritans. And many of the Puritans left England and came to New England during the reign of Charles I. Those who stayed revolted against him. There was an English civil war and Charles I lost his head. His son, Charles II, was exiled for about 10 years in the Netherlands while Oliver Cromwell was the Lord Protector of England. When Charles II came back in 1660, he was restored to the throne. It's called the Restoration, and he still didn't like the Puritans, um, probably partly because they killed his dad and sent him into exile. James II was actually the younger brother of Charles II, and when Charles II died, James II became the king. James had a son who he had, um, I think, baptized in the Catholic Church. Somehow he had him recognized as a Catholic, James II, and uh, everyone in England was not happy about the fact that their king was now taking them back towards Catholicism. And so they revolted and made James's oldest daughter, who was Protestant, Mary, and her husband, William. They made them the king and queen. This was called the Bloodless Revolution or the Glorious Revolution of 1688. So James II only reigned for a very short time. Um, we didn't talk about him much in this class. Um, but anyway, 
I think the main reason I put him on the study guide was so that I could trip you up with James the first. Uh, the Great Migration is in the 1630s when all of those Puritans leave under Charles I and come across and establish the Massachusetts Bay Colony. That's the Great Migration. The Great Ejection is in 1662 when 2,400 Puritan pastors are expelled from their congregations because they are unwilling to submit to the Act of Uniformity. The Act of Uniformity declared that everybody had to follow the Book of Common Prayer, and the Puritans did not want to do that. And so they got expelled in what was called the Great Ejection, and they became known as nonconformists because they would not abide by the Act of Uniformity. There are actually several acts of uniformity, but the one we're most concerned about is the one in, um, in the early 1660s that resulted in the Great Ejection. Yep, Cameron. Um, is, um, were those Puritan pastors, they were Anglicans up to that point, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, because even before that, during the English Civil War and then during Oliver Cromwell's protectorate, the Church of England had become very Puritan, which is why the Westminster Assembly met and the Westminster Standards and everything else were passed. And that all got undone once the restoration of Charles II to the throne took place in 1660. Yep, Aaron. 2,400, approximately. 2,400 I'm sorry? 2,400 Puritan Expelled from their churches, yep. Uh, the act really should be the act against the Puritans. I'm not sure why it's plural, but there was an act against the Puritans. It was passed in 1593 during the reign of Elizabeth, and it was aimed at the separatists in particular. Elizabeth didn't really enforce it, but when James came to the throne, he did enforce it. And this results in separatist Puritans leaving England, going to the Netherlands, and then leaving the Netherlands, getting on a boat called the Mayflower, and coming across and establishing the Plymouth Colony in 1620. Sorry, the Great Migration was also south of the U.S. as well. That's correct, but it was later. So the initial group of Puritan separatists who came across on the Mayflower came across and landed at Plymouth in 1620 and started Plymouth Colony. It was 10 years later in 1630 that John Winthrop led about, well, eventually 30,000 Puritans come across and establish the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And then eventually Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay become one colony, but uh, not, not initially. All right, uh, separatists and dissenters refer to those early Puritans who are not going to be part of the Anglican Church and are not going to attend a Church of England congregation. Um, after the English Civil War, after the uh, later Act of Uniformity, uh, those Puritans who get expelled are called nonconformists. So, slight distinction there. The millinery petition was the thou supposed thousand Puritan pastors who signed a document asking James the sixth of Scotland when he became James the first of England. They asked him to please take the church down a Puritan path, and he did not want to do that, but that was their petition. 
The Hampton Court Conference in 1604 is where James met with Puritan leaders and essentially told them, look, I'm going to maintain this moderate, um, semi-high church, kind of very Anglican-esque way of doing things in the Church of England. It was also at the Hampton Court Conference where he authorized a new version of the Bible, which would be published in 1611, seven years later, called the what we call the King James Version. James the First or Charles the James the First. Okay. Did, did I say Charles? It was the James the First. Richard Bancroft was the Archbishop of Canterbury who had been given oversight of the King James translation. William Laud was the Archbishop of Canterbury under Charles I. He was the one who really advocated Arminianism. He outlawed preaching on election in Anglican churches, and he had it in for the Puritans. John Smythe, John Smith, I don't know how you pronounce it, Smith with a Y. Uh, He was an early separatist who in 1609 was influenced by Anabaptists, And he is the one who is credited with starting the English Baptist movement. John Smythe. Particular Baptists are Reformed Baptists. They believe in particular redemption. General Baptists are Arminian Baptists. They do not believe in particular redemption. And uh, really, those two branches coexist very early on in English Baptist history. But when we come to the American Baptist movement, it was the particular Baptists who were first here in the United States or in the American colonies. And uh, Roger Williams was the one who started the first Baptist church of Providence, Rhode Island, which was the first Baptist church in America. So really, there shouldn't be any other First Baptists. They should all be second, third, fourth, and so on. The first one was in Providence. I'm just kidding, but... Um, All right, uh, then I'll I'll let you guys look up these five different Puritans that we talked about in class. Uh, What you should really know about them are probably the most famous things that they wrote. So Richard Baxter, Reformed Pastor, Saints Everlasting Rest, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, Matthew Henry, his commentaries, John Owen, Noah, maybe some of his most well-known works. Um, in his case, it's more just his erudite scholarship and um, his interactions there with Charles II in London uh, after the Restoration. Thomas Watson... So just go back and review those a little bit. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, of course, was the Lord Protector of England. And during the period of Puritan ascendancy, during the Protectorate, so for 10 years, he, uh, uh, about 10 years, he rules England as sort of a Puritan dictator. Uh, I called it the authorized version. What I'm meaning here is the King James Version in particular. Technically, there are... Technically, there are three authorized versions in English history, starting with the Great Bible of 1638, and then the Bishop's Bible of, 16, uh, of 1538, and then the Bishop's Bible of 1568 or so, right around there. And then the King James Version, which 
Some would say it wasn't even technically authorized in the same way as those other ones. It's the one that we refer to as the authorized version. It was published in 1611. So I'm talking about the King James Version of the Bible. And it was actually the Puritans who wanted a new translation because the Bishop's Bible, which was the authorized version up to that point, was so terrible, everybody hated it. And the Geneva Bible, which was much better, was not allowed to be used in the churches of England because the kings of England didn't like it because the study notes in the Geneva Bible were anti-Episcopalian in their form of church government. And so the Puritans asked for a new version of the Bible just to get rid of the Bishop's Bible because it was so bad. King James. So it's disappointing because I want to launch on some of these things and I know we don't have time. Uh, the Puritan movement in New England, uh, the Mayflower, uh, Pilgrims, you should know, Plymouth, 1620, Massachusetts Bay, 1630s, that was the Great Migration. New England uh, really was the Puritans wanted to start a new England. So they wanted it to be like England, but they wanted it to be Puritan. So they called it New England. William Bradford was one of those separatists who came across on the Mayflower. He was an early governor of the Plymouth Colony. He was not the first governor. John Carver was. But after John Carver died, William Bradford was the governor there for over 20 years. Uh, I think more like 30 years. John Winthrop was... Uh, a lawyer and entrepreneur businessman in England who helped secure the uh, royal um, uh, pronouncement, I guess, uh, to start a colony. forget exactly what the word is there, but uh, he got permission from King Charles I to start the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and he led the first wave of that great migration in the ships that came across to populate Massachusetts Bay. He also served as the governor of Massachusetts Bay for 12 out of the first 20 years of its existence. Uh, Roger Williams was that um, <coughs> Puritan who became convinced of Baptist, um, of Baptist uh, tenets and convictions, and so he left Massachusetts Bay, went and help, helped to found uh, Providence Plantation, in Rhode Island, and he established the First Baptist Church of Providence. You can always remember that it was the particular Baptists who were there first, because it was not Free Will Rhode Island, it was Providence Rhode Island. Uh, and then Harvard is an early Puritan school that was started in 1636, obviously a Christian school, trained pastors, 1636. Oh, I wanted to show you guys this, because I just think it's really funny. Uh, maybe you guys have heard about this. This is the famous statue at Harvard University. And uh, the inscription on the statue says, uh, John Harvard, founder, 1638, is what it says on the statue. And it is known on campus as the statue of three lies, because none of those things is true. This is not John Harvard. This is a 19th century Harvard student that they made the statue after. So it's not actually the likeness of John Harvard. We don't know what he looked like. John Harvard himself was not the founder of Harvard University. He was an early benefactor to the school, and that's why they named the school after him. So he was not the founder. And the school was not started in 1638. It was started in 1636. So it's, it's completely wrong. And the irony of it is also emblazoned on the 
statue is the school logo, which is Veritas, which means truth. So here we have at Harvard, the statue says truth, and it's the statue of three lies. And uh, the Hawaiian lei uh, obviously has been added later. So there you go. You don't have to know that for the test, but I just wanted to throw that in there. <coughs> Um, all right, Protestantism in Europe. John Calvin, you should know. Theodore Beza, his successor, you should know. Reformed scholasticism is essentially what developed as um, something of orthodox academic Calvinism. Jacob Arminius, who was a professor at the University of Leiden, uh, rejected the supralapsarianism of Bayesian reformed scholasticism and as a result created a system that we call Arminianism. Uh, Jacob Arminius is the Latinized version of his name, which is Hermanson. Uh, remonstrance is misspelled. There should be a T before the final S, remonstrance. Uh, those are, the word remonstrance, if you spell it T-R-A-N-C-E, remonstrance, uh, actually means to protest or to complain or to have a grievance. So the remonstrance are those who were protesting the... Calvinism, the supralapsarianism of kind of standardized Reformed scholasticism in the late um, in the late fifth, in the late 16th century, early 17th century. Uh, the Remonstrants are the followers of Jacob Arminius. The Synod of Dort in 1619 was the place where, in response to the Remonstrants, uh, the five points of Calvinism were articulated. And of course, then being translated into English, they make a nice acronym that we call TULIP, and uh, that's where they come from. Superlapsarianism is the idea that in the logical order of the divine decrees that God determined whom he would elect before he determined to create. So superlapsarianism, the, dec the decree to save some and not save others comes before the decree to create. It's also known as antilapsarianism. Infralapsarianism, also known as sublapsarianism, is the idea that God, in the logical order of his divine decrees, determined to create before he determined to save some and elect others. Francis Turretin is a uh, Dutch theologian. I think he's Dutch. Um, but uh, a reformed theologian in the mid-17th century who responded not only to Arminianism, but also to uh, Amaraldianism, or four-point Calvinism. And he wrote a very important three-volume systematic theology that became the standard Reformed systematic theology. It was even used at Princeton Seminary until Charles Hodge wrote one in English. Turretin's was in Latin. Systematic theology used to be something you had to take in Latin. Aren't you glad it's been translated into English since then? All right, Lutheranism. Martin Luther, you should know, Melanchthon was his sidekick. Martin Chemnitz was a second-generation Lutheran who was involved in producing the Book of Concord. Within the Book of Concord, which is a collection of Lutheran documents and other ancient documents that provides kind of the fundamental basis for Lutheranism, within the Book of Concord, there is a sort of doctrinal statement called the Formula of Concord, which are the basic tenets of what Lutheranism believes. And the Book of Concord was developed 
around 1580 on the 50th anniversary of the Diet of Augsburg, which was in 1530. Lutheran orthodoxy was sort of this dry, dead orthodoxy that developed. It was a lot of doctrinal convictions, and, or a lot of doctrinal creeds, but not a lot of personal conviction or personal transformation. And the response to Lutheran orthodoxy was pietism. Pietism emphasized a change in life. And um, certainly we would say that there needs to be a balance between those two things. You need to have truth, and you also need to have a transformed life. The Thirty Years' War, which I skipped over from 1618 to 1638, was a series of wars within the Holy Roman Empire, one of the deadliest uh, religious conflicts in European history. It was primarily, or at least initially, fought between Protestants and Catholics within the Holy Roman Empire. Philip Jacob Spainer is the father of pietism. His work called Pious Desires, or Pia Desideria, uh, is considered kind of the um, initial uh, statement for German pietism. He was actually writing that as an introduction to a, a, another work that was written by Johann Arndt. So Arndt is kind of considered the forefather of pietism, or the grandfather of pietism. Arndt lived in the 16th century. Spainer lived mostly in the 17th century. The early 1600s was where he was doing his work. His successor and follower, uh, disciple, was August Hermann Franck. And together, Spainer and Franck represent the leadership of the first wave of pietism, and they both taught at the University of Halle, which is where pietism really gained a foothold. H-A-L-L-E. It's Halle. Uh, Nicholas Ludwig Count von Zinzendorf uh, represents the leader of the second wave of pietism, and whereas Spainer and Franca were a little bit more, I think, biblical in their pietism, Zinzendorf was a little bit more mystical in his pietism. But he is associated with the Moravians. The Moravians were the descendants of John Huss. And the Moravians are very significant because they represent a link in the chain to the evangelical revival in England because it was through Moravian influence that John and Charles Wesley were both converted. And so we have an element of pietism in Methodism and in the evangelical revival in England. René Descartes, no, René Descartes is the Dutch philosopher in the early 1600s who wrote a book called The Discourse on the Method. I think it was the 1630s when that was published, which... Uh, established the idea that human reason is the basis for all knowledge. Descartes is famous for his statement, I think, therefore I am, which is a way of saying that the way we think about existence and everything in the world starts in our own minds. Birth of rationalism, and rationalism contributes to this age of enlightenment, which really represents the greatest threat to Christianity in Western society really, I think, since the 18th century. <clears throat> um, it's the birth of secularism. All right. See, this test is going to be easy. The Evangelical Revival and Great Awakening. Solomon Stoddard, Edward's grandfather, Halfway Covenant, was the way to keep uh, unconverted people in the church. John Wesley, we've talked a lot about. Jonathan Edwards, we've talked a lot about. Religious affections, his treatise on that, the idea that conversion 
has to be evidenced by fruit and that the fruit of a changed life is really the only subjective assurance that there is for salvation. Freedom of the will means that God has free will and everybody else has uh, dependent free will, so compatibilism. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, his famous sermon. Charles Wesley, brother of John, wrote over 6,000 hymns. George Whitfield, famous preacher, made 13 transatlantic voyages, seven trips to the American colonies. Methodists, uh, started by John Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, and uh, outgrowth out of the Holy Club, named for their extreme methods of behavior and also all a methodical approach to studying the Bible. Henry Skugel was the Puritan who wrote The Life of God and the Soul of Man, which Charles Wesley gave a copy of to George Whitfield, and George Whitfield realized that he needed to be born again after reading that book. Sophie Hopke was the girl that John Wesley met in America. Didn't go well, he fled back to England. Mary Vazile was the woman that he finally did marry. Didn't go well either, and they permanently separated. Giblert Tennant, no, that's misspelled, I'm sorry. Gilbert Tennant. Uh, Gilbert Tennant was another one of the great awakening preachers. Uh, one of his most famous sermons was The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry, in which he said that the old light Puritans, those who rejected the Great Awakening, that perhaps the reason they rejected the revival is because they weren't really saved at all. So <laughs> he questioned their salvation uh, in that message. David Brainerd, uh, missionary to the Indians, died at 29. His memoirs spark really the modern missions movement. We'll talk about that more later. Friend of Jonathan Edwards. New Light Presbyterians embrace the Great Awakening. Old Light Presbyterians reject the Great Awakening. Yale started in 1702. That's where Jonathan Edwards went to school. Princeton, or the New College, or College of New Jersey there in Princeton, what eventually becomes Princeton University, uh, was established by New Light Presbyterians, New Light Puritans, as a way to promote evangelistic and Great Awakening tenets in students. Edwards was the president there for just a short period of time. Northampton, Massachusetts is where Edwards pastored. That was in for over 20 years. Enfield, Connecticut was where he preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. New Haven, Connecticut is where Yale University is. And Stockbridge, Massachusetts is where Edwards spent about six years of his life ministering to the Housatonic Indians. All right, three minutes left. The Second Great Awakening. <clears throat> Samuel Davies was actually the president of Princeton right after Jonathan Edwards. I'm not exactly sure why I included him in the list, but just another name you need to know. John Witherspoon uh, was also a president of the College of New Jersey. It was after Samuel Davies, and then there was one more guy after him, and then John Witherspoon. Witherspoon was there for about 25 years. He was there long enough to really give stability to the school, and it was under Witherspoon, who himself was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, it was under Witherspoon that there was a revival that broke out on campus, and one of the students, John McMillan, along with some others, uh, John McMillan was converted during that revival. McMillan then went to Pennsylvania. He was known as the Apostle of the West. He established what becomes Pittsburgh University uh, and um, trains over a hundred other ministers who go out and there's revival on the western frontiers of Pennsylvania under Macmillan. Uh, Princeton Theological Seminary was started in the early 1800s. 
by Archibald Alexander and Ashbel Green. Uh, Archibald Alexander was its first president. Ashbel Green actually serves as the president of Princeton University, but Princeton University and Princeton Seminary are two distinct institutions, even though they are geographically close to one another and at times cooperated with one another in their history. Charles Hodge, uh, an early president of Princeton Theological Seminary and probably its most famous uh, president, though B.B. Warfield and some others were also very well known. We'll talk a lot more about Charles Hodge next week and in the weeks to follow. James McGreedy was the student of John McMillan. It was McGreedy who went to Kentucky and in Kentucky began to hold camp meetings outdoors based on the Scottish camp meeting camp uh, outdoor communion model. And those camp meetings became very, very popular and this becomes a form of evangelistic method that is used now by not just the Presbyterians, but also the Baptists and the Methodists. It becomes the way to reach the pioneers on the frontiers. Francis Asbury was that second generation Methodist who came from England to North America and was the famous circuit rider who logs over 300,000 miles on horseback, preaching as an itinerant evangelist. And there's uh, even a university, Francis Asbury University, named after him. Peter Cartwright was the sort of infamous Methodist camp meeting evangelist. He was the guy that would go down and thrash people in the audience if they were misbehaving during his messages. He's also the one who preached famously against Calvinism by preaching a message on the devil and John Calvin. And you start to see the influence of John Wesley's evangelical Arminianism really taking shape during the Second Great Awakening in some of these Methodist camp meetings. And that leads, of course, to the new measures of Charles Finney. <clears throat> and we've talked about those today. Uh, well, we're out of time. So Asahel Nettleton, uh, New England preacher, Lyman Beecher, really all of these guys are New England pre preachers. Lyman Beecher, all four of these, Gardner Spring, well, three of them, Asahel Nettleton, Lyman Beecher, and Gardner Spring, they were all initially opposed to Finney's new measures. Nettleton and Spring maintained that stance. Beecher eventually said, you know what? <clears throat> I think uh, Finney's on to something, and Beecher joined with Finney and adopted those new measures as his own. And uh, so that's kind of the significance there. Uh, Spring was a pastor in New York for many years. Uh, Nettleton was a pastor in Connecticut for many years. Uh, Nettleton, known uh, actually in history for his opposition to Charles Finney, though both he and Spring opposed Finney's new measures. Nathaniel Taylor was the one who developed this new haven theology, this new divinity, which was... Uh, called, uh, or was a, it was an attempt, it was an attempt to make Calvinism uh, acceptable to Unitarians. Uh, I don't know why you would even want to do that, but it was an attempt to do that, and so it was actually the undoing of Calvinism in an attempt to make Calvinism more Arminian. And Finney latched onto that and used that new divinity, that new haven theology, as a way to uh, justify his new measures.